Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you missed last week's episode, I made a change in how I am getting questions from y'all, so um, if you leave them in the comment section of my YouTube channel, then I may or may not see them and get them in my queue of questions to answer. But if you send them to me by email at, at askchrisshelton they will definitely get in the queue, okay? You can tweet me questions, you can Facebook message me questions, I get that stuff all the time, but I'm not necessarily adding those to my queue, all right? So that's how, that's how this goes. Okay, um, wow, what a week this week, huh? Jeez, <laughs> pretty wild things happening, and uh, it was a little distracting this week. I actually intended to get some other things done, and I ended up getting off onto this stuff for a couple days, but, um, but, you know, uh, everything's moving forward quite well. And I also want to summarize all of the uh, ways that you can contribute or help this channel go or keep going. Uh, last week I highlighted some merch that I sell. There's a Patreon you can sign up for. There's PayPal, of course, for a one-off. And, um, of course, I have uh, a book that I have written called Scientology A to Xenu, An Insider's Guide to What Scientology is Really All About. And if you haven't read that book and you're interested in Scientology, then I really recommend that you get it because that is a critical analysis of the subject. It is not just my own personal story or memoir. All right. And podcast-wise, I hope you guys will check out the podcast that I did this week with Lloyd Evans and Jonathan Streeter. It was the uh, a new episode of The Three Apostates, and we had a lot of fun doing that. And I also, and I will put a link to this in the description section below, got a three-hour interview this week um, that, that was done on me by a man named John Dellen, who is a former Mormon activist, a uh, pretty good one, and uh, he wanted to do an interview. And so the first one that, we're, that we did, the first part that we did was literally the history of Scientology from the beginning through to the death of L. Ron Hubbard. That's how far we got in three hours. So if you're curious about that and what I have to say about it, because I kind of went chronologically through Elmer Hubbard's life and what led up to Scientology and then the creation of Scientology and how that developed, then that is the podcast or uh, video for you. All right, let's get on with your questions now. We have some pretty interesting ones this week. Preacher 1138. Since David Miscavige has dismantled Scientology International Management, how does he get Scientology business done? Are there any executives left, or does Miscavige simply run everything himself? Since Int management is largely gone, in general, what Scientology executives are there left? And do the executives get any perks or better pay than the staff or Sea Org? Okay, good question. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about this a little bit. In my video where I kind of years ago broke down the entire Scientology management structure, you can see on the chart that I used for that that there is a middle management section of Scientology that are layered between where David Miscavige is at RTC and where the city-level churches and Sea Org-level churches or organizations are located, okay? So in the command structure, there are lots of people between David Miscavige and the rest of Scientology, even if int management were empty. And int management is not totally empty. It's not like there's nobody there. But a lot of the, from what I've heard, and this is all just what I've heard, I haven't been involved personally in Scientology for a few years now, so I can only go on what I'm being told from those who are inside or things that I see and, and put together. But what I'm hearing and seeing is that a lot of the brunt of the um, 
international decision making that now gets done is done at the level of what's called ILO or the International Liaison Office and that is the upper middle management. There are two uh, parts to middle management. There is the ILO that is located in the building in uh, Hollywood, California called the Hollywood Guarantee Building. It's a big 12-story building and it's right on Hollywood Boulevard and that is where the LRH Life Exhibition is, this big museum to L. Ron Hubbard's life, and it is where the international management uh, sectors are all located, and it's also where OSA International is located. So all that work is done out of that building. Um, and the day-to-day -day running of the affairs of the Church of Scientology in general, I think are mostly being run out of that building through a unit called CMO, or the Commodore's Messenger Org, and um, the branch of that organization called IXU, or the International Extension Unit. CMO International is located at the Gold Base uh, in Hemet, in San Jacinto, California. Uh, outside Hemet, I should say. So that is where you have the highest level executives and the, the old guard guys who have been put in the hole or you know, doing whatever they're doing now. Miscavige would pull people, by the way, out of the hole when he needed them for things, uh, and that, I'm sure that's still the case. Miscavige will, you know, pick on anybody he needs or wants in order to get certain tasks done, but he seems to use those guys more as attack dogs now when there's going to be some kind of a, uh, well, it's been a years, but, you know, when he needed attack dogs for media reports or to go on CNN or something like that, then he would pull these guys out of the hole and ship them off and do that, and then they'd come back and go right to the hole. And that's where Mike Rinder was when he decided, yeah, I ain't going back to the hole. And that's when he took off when he was out in the UK. Uh, other international executives have not had that epiphany yet. And so they still keep going back or they're just stuck there. Um, okay, so how does Miscavige get things done? Well, he communicates with, or his aides or assistant communicates with ILO and the person who's in charge of that. And I don't remember the name of that person or, you know, and, and from, I heard the name of the person who was running that a year ago. It easily could have changed by now because if there's one thing that's consistent in the Sea Org, it is that people do not last very long on their jobs. They get transferred around all the time, either th because of punishment or because of personnel needs in different places. Miscavige has suddenly got his attention on this area, and we need people there, and so we rip off Peter to pay Paul, and then Miscavige later on, six months or a year later, he's got some other thing he wants done, and so now we're ripping off people and putting them there for, for that emergency. And this is just usual activity for the Sea Org. So they're always moving and shuffling people around because they don't have enough people to deal with all the demands that they have. Uh, okay, now, you ask, are there any executives left or does Miscavige simply run everything himself? No, he does definitely not run everything himself. Um, he's got a whole entourage, I guess you could say, or crew of people who service his needs, who are his direct assistants, or he's got his own personal chef, he's got... Um, you know, his own uh, people who deal with all of his clothes and his, you know, his laundry and his personal quarters upkeep and stuff. So he doesn't have to deal with any of that. His attention can be focused on whatever it is that he wants his attention focused on. Um, and then, like I said, the, all the int executives who have not, you know, uh, gotten old or, or passed on or whatever is going on with them, uh, there's always new people to bring up. 
okay? Don't forget that. He can always draw fresh blood from the lower ranks who have no idea what it's actually like to work for, directly for David Miscavige. I mean, everybody in Scientology is in awe of him, loves him, reveres him, but then you move up to where you're really in his inner circle or you're near or around him and suddenly you find out that it's not such a glossy, wonderful world anymore and that's, why, that's another reason why at that level people don't last that long. But for those who can tough it out and persist and believe in the Scientology goals and all that, they, they can last for quite a while. And, uh, and that's where he gets that new blood from. So he's always got an ability to replenish. He's sort of done more, though, because he's sort of really literally torn down the structures of international management. And again, this is all described in that Scientology Organizational Madness video that I made years ago. As far as I know, everything I said in that video is still 100% true. Okay. Um, and then you ask here... Um, do the executives get any perks or better pay? Uh, yeah, some from time to time they do. I can't speak to now, but in the past they certainly have. Uh, bigger bonuses, not necessarily regular weekly pay that's any better. Um, and if you've watched or listened to uh, Mark Headley talk about what life is like at IntBase, then you'll know that, yeah, there's some bonuses that happen from time to time, but at the same time that maybe you're getting a, this amazing Christmas bonus or Sea Org Day bonus, you're also being run on a daily basis on these cards, this card system, and if you don't have the card to eat that day, then you don't get to eat. So it's kind of, you know, it's a little um, Lord of the Flies-ish, you know, kind of situation up there. So, uh, you know, so that's basically what I can say about that. Uh, I, you know, I'm offering broad things here, but I'm trying to stay within the realm of what I actually know. So, hope that answers some of that at least. Missy Lowe, how much does the Church of Scientology pay its staff versus its income? Are they breaking even? What is the percentage of what the church makes compared to what they pay out? Okay, this is cool. Um, I do not know off the top of my head and or I don't have ready access to what the operating costs of Scientology are, so I can't speak to that aspect of it. But in terms of the pay, I did some math and some breakdowns, and let's go over this. So I'm only looking at expenditures from the Sea Org itself. I'm not looking at the individual churches. Every city-level church, Denver, Malmo, you know, uh, London, I mean, all around the world, all of these are separate incorporated bodies, independent, that are granted the right to deliver Dynetics and Scientology, and they pay money up, but how they pay their staff is depends completely on how much money they made that week. The Church of Scientology International does not um, send money down to them to pay their staff or deal with their bills. They have to make that money themselves. So each individual church has its own operating costs, and, it's, uh, and the staff really hardly get paid much of anything. Uh, maybe at, at the most, they might get a couple hundred bucks a week. Ooh, hardly a living wage. I mean, I'm talking about like two or three hundred bucks, right? So if you're making twelve hundred bucks a month working at the Church of Scientology, you are maxing out. You are like really doing great. And that ain't really so much if you think about it, right? Um, but that's that's at the city level churches, and that's the and it's. Um, but in, take a, it, if we look at the Sea Org, okay? Let's look at Sea Org. Uh, again, 
The Sea Org organizations also run the same way as the churches, but I'm going to incorporate all the Sea Org members into this math so that I can kind of show this point. Um, and this is all very, very conservative, okay? The number of Sea Org members, let's say that there's 5,000 Sea Org members right now. I think there's a lot less than that at this point, but that was the last figure that I was absolutely positive was correct, and that was back when I was still in the Sea Org. So let's just say that's still the number. 5,000 Sea Org members, and let's say they all get paid now $100 a week rather than the $50 a week that was the condition when I was still in. I've heard that they've, that they've raised the pay. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't, but let's say they have. So, okay, 5,000 Sea Org members, $100 a week, that is $500,000. So if we break down how much do the, does the Sea Org make in a week, the church, you know, and, and uh, like in total, uh, okay, church income at the Flag Service Org in Clearwater, Florida, a million dollars a week. That is lowball. I am quite sure they're actually making more than that, but let's say a million dollars a week. Um, church income from all the other advanced organizations around the world, uh, the St. Hill, you know, ASHO, AO at, uh, in Los Angeles, in Sydney, etc., all of those Sea Org delivery organizations, let's say they pull in a million dollars a week total, okay? Church income from, um, uh, from books and materials, uh, $200,000 a week, let's say. I am really lowballing this. I am sure they're making more, but let's say bottom barrel, $200,000 a week. And IAS donations. This is just straight money coming right into the church, no, you know, no pass and go. Um, collecting way more than $200. In fact, IAS donations is anybody's guess, but let's say totally lowball figure of $100,000 a week. Okay, just that. Okay, now the IAS can make significantly more than that, even in just one sales cycle, right? With one person, they can pull in a million bucks just like that. But let's say average it all out, $100,000 a week. So total income per week Church of Scientology, $2,300,000. They pay out $500,000 in staff pay to the Sea Org members. So the rest is not pure profit at all. Like I said, I didn't incorporate into this operating costs and stuff. There's all kinds of other calculations here. I'm being very broad in general. But in that sense, that's your basic ratio of how much they're paying out to the staff that they have to pay versus how much they're making, pulling in. Um, so, you know, there's some numbers for you. Tyler Simmons, what is your opinion of Pascal's wager? Okay, I made some notes on this one because I need to talk about what Pascal's wager is for those of you out there who have never heard of this. And you might find it kind of interesting. Uh, it has to do with religion and Christianity specifically, but uh, I actually just drew from, <laughs> I just looked it up on Wikipedia because Pascal's actual wager was quoted there. And I'm not going to read that because it's, uh, you know, centuries old writing and it's, it reads a little cryptically. But there are some interpretations and layout of this. And so I'm going to read that. Okay. So Pascal basically argues that a rational person should live as though God exists and seeks to believe in God. If God does not actually exist, such a person will have only a finite loss some pleasures, luxury, etc., 
whereas he stands to receive infinite gains, as represented by eternity in heaven, and avoid infinite losses, eternity in hell, right? In other words, it's a safe bet to believe in God, because if you're wrong, no big deal, and if you're right, oh, you get all the rewards, okay? That's the basic idea of Pascal's wager. It is, as I understand it and from what I read, a Christian apologetics argument. It is intended to create new believers, and, it, and Pascal was a believer. Uh, Pascal begins by painting a situation where both the existence and non-existence of God are impossible to prove by human reason. And on this, I agree with him. So, supposing that reason cannot determine the truth between the two options, one must wager, you have to, you have to make a bet, by weighing the possible consequences, Pascal's assumption is that when it comes to making the decision, no one can refuse to participate. Withholding assent is impossible because we're already embarked by living our lives, okay? So we have to make a choice. There's no, there's no sitting this one out according to the constraints of how we laid this thing out. Pascal considers that if there is equal risk of loss and gain, right, coin toss, 50-50, then human reason is powerless to address the question of whether God exists. That being the case, then human reason can only decide the question according to possible resulting happiness of the decision, weighing the gain and loss in believing that God exists, and likewise in believing that God does not exist. Okay, so um, this wager, okay, so now here's my, some of my statements on this. Um, this wager assumes a Christian God. It has been applied to other religions apparently as well, but I'm taking it in the context in which it was originally made by Pascal himself. And that assumes the existence of a Christian God. Um, I do not believe in that concept of a God, nor do I find that's, that concept makes a whole lot of sense to me. Okay, I get how it provides comfort to people. It provides a supportive framework for the mysteries and uh, problems of life in the universe. And I get that there is a comfort level to that. I get all the other, you know, reasons why religion exists. You know, it's a social construct to bring people together around common ground. It provides a moral construct for people to live their lives. I mean, I, I get all of those things. Okay, so none of what I'm saying here is a commentary on any of that. I'm strictly speaking about the conception of God as an entity. I do not believe that a Christian God is a God that I can believe in because I find the whole thing pretty ludicrous and ridiculous. Um, the reason I find it that way is because like the Greek gods, um, the, the Christian God is, is more a reflection of the times in which he was created by the people who wrote biblical scriptures and have interpreted them over the many, many years. It's more, that God to me is more a reflection of those people and their ideas and their prejudices and biases and hatreds than it is a reflection of what I would think of as some entity that is capable of creating the entire universe that we exist in. You know, the scope and size of our universe is beyond our comprehension. What entity would be capable of creating such an, a realm of existence? Well, such an entity would have to exist outside of time and space, as we understand it. And we barely understand time space as it is right now. Uh, we're really only figuring things out. And quantum mechanics is telling us that all the things we think are true might not be. But that's a whole other thing. So 
so there's lots of complications and you know and and things to think about with all of this. So if you're going to kind of bring it all into a ball and go, okay, God created this, and that's how you want to think about it. How 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 would we ever think about ourselves in relation to such an entity? How could such an entity who could be capable of creating such an infinite cosmos of, of possibility that, that, and, and then life that exists in this cosmos, how could such an entity care at all what I had for breakfast this morning, what my masturbatory practices are, who and what I'm having sex with? How would that even enter the realm of, of the thinking of such an entity? I, I can't go there. I, I just can't figure out how that makes any sense to anybody. Unless you bring this entity down to a level that is something that you can understand, which means you have to personify it and you have to use human values to do that. And I don't do that, right? I don't think that's the way that such an entity would be or and I can't think of such an entity that way. So. I believe, ultimately, that such an entity could possibly exist, but I, at the same time, don't believe that said entity cares one iota about my existence or is even aware of my existence. Why would he be? Or she be? Or whatever. Does gender even apply at that level? You know what I mean? Like, we use the word he in a very generic sense. So, uh, so that's my first level of comment on this. After reading up on Pascal's wager, I discovered that I fall into what is called the argument from inconsistent revelations category. This is my other problem with Pascal's wager. This basically says, this argument from inconsistent revelations basically says, great, you want me to choose to believe, but what version of belief do I choose? Uh, since there's so many different belief systems, which all claim to be the one true faith. See, there's another problem with this. Pascal basically wrote this whole idea off, according to what I read, because he was making a Christian apologetics argument, and he wasn't intent, interested in engaging at a deeper level with this question. From what I saw, he basically blew this off by saying that if you get into the details of Christianity, you'll find that it's the one true religion. So he wrote off all of paganism and any non-white religions as obvious superstition, uh, but he was completely unable to point that same criticalness at his own religion, as is usual for apologists. Uh, so, for example, what if Odin, right, Norse god, what if Odin's real? And I go off believing with all my heart in Christ and the Holy Trinity, I'm fulfilling the needs of Pascal's wager, and yet I'm still getting it totally wrong. Uh, so I'm screwed in that situation, right? So Pascal's wager has a pretty limited logic if you look at Christianity as just one of the thousands of religions that exist on this planet. And this is one of the main reasons why I don't go down these rabbit holes or comment or talk about them very often on my channel. You know, I am an agnostic atheist. I, I, I don't believe in God in the same sense or way that I've so far heard anybody else describe God. You know, what I talked about a few minutes ago, nobody talks about God in that sense. Not in any religious circles I know of. And there's no, there's no organized religion I'm aware of that, that worships such a God. Because the very concept of God as that kind of entity 
deflects any idea of worship, why would such an entity want to be worshipped or need human beings paying any attention to it at all? Right? It just doesn't, again, it just doesn't make any sense. So, um, so that's why I look at organized religion as bringing God down. If there is such an entity, then I think organized religions are getting it wrong because they're bringing God down to what we are. <laughs> And, and we are not anything even remotely capable of creating something like this cosmos and universe that we live in. So, you know, that's kind of my big picture look at this whole thing. And I don't know that I've ever really laid it all out in detail like that. So I thought this was an opportunity to do so. And these are all just my own personal, you know, ways of looking at things. And, uh, but that's, that's might help clarify why it is that I call myself an agnostic atheist and don't associate with organized religion. William S. Is there a spectrum in Scientology for suppressive persons in terms of how suppressive they are or how high they are in fair game priority? The highest SP being a former OT8 or Sea Org member with inside information the church does not want revealed, to the lowest SP being some random wog who casually comments on YouTube videos like me, lol. Great question, William. Um, and yes, there's absolutely a spectrum or categorization of SPs to deal with. And I really don't know what OSA's priority list looks like. I'm, I'm a little curious about it, to be honest, because I, I, I don't, apparently don't seem to appear on it very much. I'm on it. You know, clearly I am. But in relation to, say, Mike, Leah, Alex Gibney, you know, my... Uh, a ton of other people, right? I mean, I don't, I don't even show up on the Stand League <laughs> website, which I think is awesome. Um, but I have my hate website, and I get trolled, and all the stuff I've, I've described uh, in ad infinitum. So, um, so there is a pecking order of some kind, or not a pecking order. There is a, a prioritization list that OSA has put together, and um, I think, in a general sense, we look at it in terms of threats to the church, or more specifically and more importantly, threats to David Miscavige. People who have inside information on David Miscavige are absolutely at the top of that list, without question. And nobody who's commenting on my YouTube channel fits that category, right? And as I said last week, if you're commenting on my YouTube channel, nobody in Scientology cares. They're not, they're not going to chase you or pursue you just because of that. Uh, but... Uh, if you go on international television or you go start a television show about Scientology, they're going to be all up in your business. Of course they are. Uh, so it really has to do with how much of an effect you're creating according to their perception of what secrets or information they're trying to protect or who they're trying to protect, whether it's David Miscavige or some other Scientology principal. And as far as I can tell, that's how they determine who to go after. Susan Hepler. I have a question about the church's stance on abortion. Seeing how the church pushes pregnant Sea Org members to get an abortion, why do they, the church, not fight any of the anti-abortion laws? Don't these laws keep Sea Org members from clearing the planet and focusing on their job? Also, why don't pro-life Christians ever target Scientology for protest when it comes to abortion? Hey, thanks for the question, Susan. Um, okay, well, this basically speaks to Scientology's hypocrisy and the desire to keep secrets. You see, nobody's supposed to know about those abortions. And that's really only at the level of the Sea Org where it's really heavily enforced, where they really have power of choice over a person's ability to determine whether they're going to have or not have a baby. They really put a ton of pressure on the mother and the father to stay in the Sea Org and abort the baby because it's the greatest good for the greatest number, 
That's how they perceive that problem, as they call it, right? Have getting pregnant. Um, and if you get pregnant more than once and it becomes an issue, then they'll just make you go, they'll go get, make the guy go get a vasectomy um, because they're just not interested in continuing to have that problem. Um, and, the, and of course, the issue with this is not whether it is or isn't right to have an abortion. That is an individual decision that each person needs to make for their circumstances in the context of their life. That's how I look at that. Um, abortion in and of itself, as I see it, is not a good or bad act. It wholly depends on the context and circumstances. And when someone, anyone, is forcing you to get rid of your baby because they think that it's the greatest good, even though it might not be for you, that's where we are drawing lines and saying this is completely unacceptable. And of course, that's what the Church of Scientology does, specifically in the Sea Org especially. So, um, but the Sea Org doesn't want to put on a public face that that's what they're doing. The Church of Scientology does not in any way want to present the fact that they're pushing abortions on people, especially when L. Ron Hubbard wrote that one of the most damaging things you can do to a baby is an attempt an abortion and then fail at it. And it will screw the child up, like, bigly, right? And, of course, that's actually true. Um, you know, I can't imagine that there would be any positive result from trying to abort a baby and not getting the job done. Um, so that, you know, that could just have all kinds of physical repercussions for a baby. So, um, so that's their official stance on the topic, is what L. Ron Hubbard said about it. So, you know, abortion's bad. But they're also greatest good if you're a Sea Org member. Okay, so they're keeping all that kind of secret. Uh, okay, and then uh, why don't the pro-life Christians ever target Scientology for protest? Probably because they don't know what Scientology is all about. And if they do, then they look at the fact, well, Scientology, actually, works to make inroads with these groups. They sponsor multi-denominational seminars and workshops and, and talks and things. And the Church of Scientology works very hard to ally itself with other churches. And in these days, as we are seeing, the legal liabilities that are mounting against churches of all denominations are growing because courts are now not giving churches a pass the same way that they used to. Uh, you don't just get to pull out your you know, religion card and get a get out of jail free pass with that. So churches are, you're going to see churches band together and do these interfaith conferences and multi-denominational workshops and things and work together for common cause to keep themselves out of court because all these churches have very big, big skeletons in their closets. They all do, right? And that's not a reflection of their beliefs. That's a reflection of human beings and the way they act. So... They don't want those skeletons exposed. They feel it would be damaging to the reputation and the money and the, the number of followers that each of the churches has. And they're right. So rather than clean house, which some of them are doing, they also have this strategy of binding together and working together for, for common cause for religious freedom. Right? And, the, and the misdirectors and misrepresentations are, are legion on this, but that's what they're doing. So, and it's just purely out of self-preservation. It makes complete sense that they would do this. It's just my only objection to it are the, are the lies that they tell in the process and the, the fact that they try to cover up abusive behavior. Uh, you know, churches can exist, I don't care, but 
uh, but I don't, I don't, I'm not down with the abusive behavior aspect of it. So that's probably one of the reasons that you would see pro-life Christians not protesting Scientology. Uh, but more likely, most of those pro-life Christians probably just don't, haven't watched Going Clear, you know, haven't watched uh, Scientology in the Aftermath. Because those that do, and there are some of you out there who follow my channel who, who are like that, uh, who have those beliefs, that's how you got here. And you want to know more about Scientology and stuff like that, and you do want to fight the abuses. And in that case, in, in those cases of you guys, two thumbs up, man. Please, please do. There you go. The thunder and the lightning tells us that it is time for Flash Answers. Ah, indeed. Does an auditor who brings you to clear have to be a clear or higher themselves? I would think so, since they witness all the details. Yes, at the level, you can actually be audited by somebody who is not clear, all the way up to the point where you start saying stuff that indicates that you are clear. It's called the clear cognition. And then clears and above have to take over and determine whether you've reached the state of clear. And then you're audited by people who are clear, have already achieved that state, in order to verify and certify that you are clear. And it's the same with the OT levels. From that point forward, you are only being audited or, or dealing with people who have already attained those levels. Paula Lustenberg, I have a question about the bridge to total freedom. Is it total freedom of body thetans? If so, it's like Ron Hubbard invented a problem and then charged money to solve it. Yeah, you got it. That's exactly what's going on. <laughs> Delicious pigeon cheese. Hello, Chris. Love the channel and your content. I want to know what happens in Scientology when you die. Is there such a thing as a Scientology funeral? If so, what does it entail? Yes, there is a Scientology funeral. It is basically reading out a funeral service. Uh, it can be done, I guess, at the graveside. I never attended a Scientology funeral, but I did attend Scientology memorials. And uh, they, would, they would read out a funeral service. People would come and talk about the person who had died and tell stories or fond memories of them. And it was pretty much run, as I understand it, as any other funeral service or memoriam service would be run. Uh, it's really not a whole lot different than any of that. It's just the worded, the verbiage of the service is very Scientology specific. Okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thanks for sticking around and listening to me prattle on here at a mad rate. I really appreciate your viewership, and I hope you will continue coming around. If you haven't subscribed to my channel, please do so. And if you would consider supporting me through Patreon, that'd be kind of awesome too, because that's what keeps the lights on and keeps the show going here and allows me to do what I do. So thank you very much to all of my supporters out there. You guys are great, really awesome, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.